Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex DeBranick, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What do we have up for today, Alex? Today, we're going to be talking about victory speeches. Now, along with the midterm elections, we had a number of speeches given by both those who won the races and those who conceded. By and large, most of those speeches were short thank yous to people close to them, but some politicians took that opportunity to give impassioned speeches about the time to come, even if they lost that race. Now, this is part one of a two-part episode. Today, we're going to take some of the best speeches and answer the question of why they were so motivating, why they were so inspiring. Let's take a listen to our first clip here, which is from the first-time Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We didn't launch this campaign because I thought I was special or unique or better than anyone else. We launched this campaign because in the absence of anyone giving a clear voice on the moral issues of our time, then it is up to us to voice them. We launched this campaign because no one was clearly and authentically talking about issues like the corrupting role of money in politics, like the disturbing human rights violations being committed by ICE, by the fact that, we, that no one was giving voice to the idea and the notion that an entire generation is graduating with crippling loads of student loan debt, a ticking time bomb for our economy. No one was talking about these issues, and when no one talks about them, we have the duty to stand up for what is right. So here we hear Ocasio-Cortez really leaning on all of these platform points that she's really um, running for, and we notice that phrase there at the end where she said, you know, when no one talks about them, we have a duty to stand up for what is right. And what I want you to notice here is this, what we call a universal quantifier, this idea of no one, no one, no one, nobody, nobody, nobody. And we've talked about Donald Trump using these where he says, you know, everything or everyone or all the time and, you know, every every this or every that. And so he's taking a class or a category and he's generalizing, saying that what he's about to say is true for the entire category. And we hear here Ocasio-Cortez saying and using that same type of pattern. And while she uses that pattern, she's building up that fervor, building up that excitement that is inspiring. But again, remember that this is all politics, right? So Donald Trump uses it. She uses it, even though they're on very different sides. You know, they're both using that same type of technique, that same type of pattern. Right. She's starting off with a bunch of premises saying, you know, because of this, because of this, because of this, and sort of pacing with all of those facts. And then she leads to that conclusion that 
we're now standing up for what is right. Well, what is standing up for what is right in this context? That's her running for office. That's her getting elected. Yep. And so what she's doing is that she's saying that all of these facts, all of these things lead to the conclusion that her running for office is standing up for what is right. But she doesn't actually say that. Yeah, she doesn't actually say you know outright hey this is what it meant to vote for me this is what it meant for me to be in office she instead leads up and she makes it about the issue and then she links it she links the emotion and the fervor about the issue to her running and the promise of her being able to do something and you know anyone who really you know gets into a position of public trust or a position of a public office this is very, very common. You know, it's like you're not even voting for that person and their ability to make reasoned decisions. Instead, you're voting for the issue, the stance, the thing that they are going to make happen. And, you know, the tricky part of that is, is that, you know, what if the thing they're going to make happen doesn't end up actually happening, right? (laughs) What if it ends up being reframed or changed in some other way? And they can always lean back on, well, you voted for me to make the right decisions. But what are those right decisions? Are those right decisions the specific policy points or are they the generalized ideas that are being linked in, you know, as as we hear uh, Ocasio-Cortez doing here? All right. Now, let's get to the next clip where she uh, goes into a little bit more of why she's there. I think about oftentimes that incredible day on June 26th when despite no attention, despite no media fanfare, despite the fact that no one wanted to get to, for us to get the word out on what was going on, we were able to organize everyday people knocking on our neighbor's door, and despite being outspent $4 million, 18 or 13 to 1, despite the fact that we were running against a 10-term incumbent, despite the fact that it was her first time running for office, despite the fact that we didn't have the money, despite the fact that I'm working class, despite all those things, we won. Yeah, and so what's interesting here is that she does that pacing again, that despite this, despite that, despite this, despite that, leading out with you know, a lot of statements that when you stop and critically analyze them, they might not make a lot of sense. One of them, for example, when she starts off, she says, despite no one wanting us to get the word out about what was going on, what was going on? No one. Right. And what was going on? Exactly. And so it's a little bit of a conspiracy theory mentality right there that you can fill in Whatever you want into that, that what was going on could be anything. It could be, oh, it could be vaccines. It could be, you know, the uh, uh, the birthers. It could be the truthers. It could be whatever you want. You can you can fill it in, and it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of a Trumpian tactic, to be honest. But honestly, what I hear more of is echoes of Bernie Sanders' campaign. Yeah, she's painting that underdog narrative, right? We hear this idea of. We were the everyday people, you know, despite being outspent. Okay, well, there's the whole millionaires and billionaires, you know, against the the uh, the little people kind of idea, you know, the grassroots foundation, despite coming against a 10 term incumbent, um, despite being working class. And we hear this idea, this it's this story. Okay, now it's this arc and. 
One of the things that you can notice about arcs like this is that it's a classical metaphorical structure called the hero's journey. And one of the things that happens in the hero's journey is that you've got this hero, right? And this hero has a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of talent and a lot of promise, and yet they're just running into some obstacles. And so they basically have something inside of them that makes them want to go and do something. It's what's called the call, okay? And then they're responding to the call, but then they, they run up against some obstacles, and then they overcome those obstacles. And if you pay attention, this is the story that's in every Disney movie. This is the story that's in every, um, you know, really powerful thematic structure where we hear that again and again. And this is what she's building up here. Okay. And this is why people are so passionate about her because they feel like, wow, she is making this arc from being a working person, from being a poor person, from being, you know, we even heard in the news that she uh, was unable to afford the apartment in DC even after she, uh, even after she uh, won, you know, it's like there's this arc happening. And I think this arc is just going to continue where now she's going to say, okay, now we're up against some more challenges, but we're succeeding. Right, and you'll see here that she continues with this underdog narrative throughout the rest of her speech. It's almost like a theme. So let's go ahead and listen to this next clip here, and this is a little bit of a a shorter one, but again, it really reinforces the theme even more. And that if we are going to turn this ship around as a country, it is not good enough to throw a rock at our neighbor's yard. We need to clean up our own house. That's what we got to do. If we continue to believe that we are a threatened, scarce, and limited nation, then that is exactly what we will become. What we need to do as well is realize that these short-term losses do not not mean that we have lost in the long run. Does not. In 2018, in 2018, we turned the state of Texas purple. That's what we did this year. That's what we did this year, and that is what Better or Work accomplished this year, and that is a great position to be in going into 2020. So she's adding in a lot of really interesting stuff here. Notice how Democrats won on election night. They took the House of Representatives. But what does she focus on in this speech here? She focuses on these short-term losses. Yeah, It's really bizarre if you think about it a little, a little too much, but... You know, she's building in that underdog narrative. And it's almost as though this was a prepared section of speech that she had written even before she came up. You know, this whole speech by her is only about four minutes long. This it's almost as though this was prepared. And this is a big point that I really see with Ocasio-Cortez is that, okay, this is her story, right? She was a Bernie staffer. She worked, you know, and saw from the inside the Bernie campaign you know, she started to learn and, and really we hear here, she still has a lot of rough edges. She still has a lot of parts of her uh, persona and of her speech giving abilities that are still a little bit rough, but she's really trying. Okay. She's really trying. She's getting in some of these metaphorical structures. She gets in this thing of, you know, turning this ship around. And, you know, when I stop to think about that for half of a second, I go, okay, if the country is a ship, and this ship has a certain momentum, 
right? Do I really want her to turn the whole ship around? Um, I'm not too sure about that. But, you know, we hear this this idea of, you know, throwing a rock into your neighbor's yard, okay, cleaning up your own house. These are kind of blue-collar everyday life metaphors. These are, you know, symbolic experiences. And you can bet that she's been preparing this type of stuff. You can bet that she has been working on her speech giving ability. Now, in the next speech that we're going to give, which is going to be about Ted Cruz, we haven't gotten there yet. But in the next speech that that we're going to give, you're going to hear how Ted Cruz is very, very polished, very smooth. He does this in almost a scary way, how really smoothly he does it without even thinking about it. Ocasio-Cortez doesn't have that same thing. She's still kind of learning how to give speeches. She's learning how to do this, but she's modeling it off of Bernie. She's modeling everything in what she's, what she's done. Um, so as we, as we hear this, you know, I think, you know, that idea of short-term losses, I think she came up with that and then she just threw it in there. Um, you know, as part of her speech, just because she was thinking that that anyway, you know, the same thing about Texas turning Texas purple, even though, you know, Beto lost. Right. Even though he lost. So uh, but but he did, you know, lose uh, with a close margin. So. Uh, all right. Let's get on to this next clip. So in this next clip, we are hearing, you know, even more of the, of the themes and particularly getting into the emotions. We can be confident that what we are standing up for is what is right. And we will never be ashamed for fighting for what is right. We will never be ashamed for losing in the short term or having a short term loss in order to have a lifelong gain. We will never be ashamed of that. These struggles that we are taking on are generational. These struggles that we are taking on are long. These, struggle, these struggles will not be solved in two years or four years. It will take our whole lives. But this is the fight for our lives. This is the fight of our lives. Again, this is a woman who had a uncontested race. Like, she was going to win. It was a Democratic district. All she had to do was win the primary. And she was cruising to victory. So... We get now to election night where all of our colleagues had their election day and the whole nation was watching everybody else's race. And what does she talk about? Again, she goes right back to somehow being ashamed about what we believe in, ashamed about fighting for, you know, whatever it is we're fighting for. This is the fight of our lives. She's building this 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 under this underdog narrative, this beaten back you know, a beleaguered group of people who, you know, oddly enough, happened to have won one uh, branch of government that night. Right. <laughs> but yet we're still fighting for our lives and we're on the brink of of catastrophic losses. Yeah. Wow. And and the struggles, you know, what what is exactly that she's painting here? You know, this is these struggles are not going to be overturned in two years or four years. Of course, what is she talking there? She's talking about terms. Um, but, you know, it's going to take, you know, a really long time to do it. And again, this is about her building up that momentum, that uh, fervor among her crowd where everyone is looking and going, OK, wow, you know, we really do need to fight. And this is something to pay attention to is, OK, which politicians and, you know, in, in what kind of uh, ratio do they in terms of the motivation direction, do they orient toward things being more toward motivation, meaning pleasure-based, uh, future-based, the goal, the outcome, the positive, or do they 
orient toward being more away from motivation, right? The pain, the struggle, the thing that, you know, really hurts. And what she's doing here is just hammering on, you know, that how horrible it is, right? How bad it is. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, in companies, uh, you know, the person who starts off the company and gets it to, you know, a million dollars or five million or whatever is not the same person who's going to bring it from five million to 50. And so this is something here where we hear that she is really good at uh, being able to build in this this sense of, wow, we're really the underdogs. But what happens when you're no longer the underdog? Like that message is not going to play anymore. And when the message doesn't play, her ability to speak and her, she's going to have to change the whole thing of her communication. I think her whole platform's just going to, you know, go out the window. Um, it's not really going to work that well over the long term. All right. Now, what is she building up toward? We'll get to the conclusion here. That's sort of the, the uh, denouement of her whole speech. Because today is a milestone, but it is really a beginning. It is truly a beginning. And in order for us to get there, and I believe that we can always get there faster than we can, faster than we think, we have to keep organizing. We cannot stop. Electoral politics is just a tool in a larger toolbox of this movement. A tool in a larger toolbox for this movement what is she alluding to right there? Again. Whoa. Again. You, <laughs> it's kind of, what is she alluding right, to? Right. Revolution. What is it? You can fill in right. again whatever you want. And it plays to those conspiracy theorists. It plays to those people, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, Googling how the Fed is going to, you know, steal all of our gold. Whatever it is, like, you can you can fill in the blank. Yeah, and she talks about you know, that idea of a milestone. Okay, we hear a lot of this within the language of what is it that she's representing with the different words and what she's and what she's saying. But yeah, we hear this sense of okay, we have to, we have to, we have to. Well, when someone says I have to, I must, I should, I need to, that's implying that there is some force outside of them that is pushing them or making them do something. So it indicates necessity. And so when we hear words like that, have to, that's also playing into that whole pain-based dynamic. We have to because we're low. We're the underdog. We're under someone's shoe, and we got to pop up out of that. It's a fight for our life. It's a fight for our life, and we have to do it. Okay? Well, that is going to play really well with certain people. Okay, others who are more comfortable are probably not going to like her as much. And so it's interesting when we talk about these types of themes – when we say, okay, who's going to vote for whom, you know, what is going to be the ability of someone really to connect with based on the types of language they're using? So necessity-based language versus possibility-based language, Mm. right? So we've heard, you know, from Obama, you're like, yeah, he does some of that necessity-based language, but a lot of his was possibility-based language. And that's where the whole, um, you know, Michelle Obama, when they go low, we go high type of thing, you know, happens. Well, that's both, right? That's pain, but it's also possibility. But we saw, you know, Barack Obama much more on the possibility, you know, spectrum. Um, I'm not sure where we would put Bernie in that spectrum. What do you think, Alex? Oh, you know, I would. But here's the thing, right, is that uh, while Bernie, I think, would be a lot more on the necessity side, I really start thinking about how Trump plays on the necessity side and that really speaks out to a lot of beleaguered 
you know, middle class people and the living in rural uh, beleaguered neighborhoods that, you know, the coal mine is shutting down, whatever it is, they're much more receptive to necessity based arguments. And the Bernie voters, I can I can certainly see that, you know, he was probably a little bit more on the necessity side, but um, but not nearly as much as Trump and not nearly as much on the possibility side as Obama. Right. Yeah. So we hear, you know, from Trump, he definitely is able to motivate people in that way. He's able to frame things in a certain way. You know, we we've talked about this before, where when a person gets into that fight, flight, freeze response, you know, when they're under pressure, when they're in pain, when their world is falling down around them, the ability to think critically goes away. You know, the ability to have logic flowing through the mind and being able to kind of pause and go, wait a second, is what they said really true? Like that goes away. And so if a person had that capacity a little bit before, now it's gone. And if they never really had that capacity at all, well, now, you know, they become even more emotionally based um, in, in being able to listen and receive that message and just kind of take it in, you know, just for just as it's presented to them as as it's said which is, you know, again, what makes fake news so dangerous and what makes just this emotion-based politics so dangerous. All right, so in our next victory speech that we're going to be listening to, we're going to Texas, right? Ted Cruz. We're going to be listening to Ted Cruz and how he really quite masterfully gives a victory speech and all of the various elements that that, that are in this one. I mean, there's just... There's just so much to break down within this. Now, just notice the difference, as I was mentioning, between Ocasio-Cortez and Cruz. You know, you're going to notice a huge difference in the smoothness of the presentation. And Cruz was really in the fight for his life. He almost lost in a very red state. Uh, So listen to when he starts off here, just how genuine and jubilant he is before he starts going into all of his, his canned stuff. If you haven't climbed up to Enchanted Rock, drink your cold shiner down in Lickenbach, taking your baby to the river walk. You ain't met my Texas yet. If you haven't floated down the El Frio, heard red dirt music on your radio, Eden Cooper's down in Lano. You ain't met my Texas yet. God bless Texas. Tonight is a victory for the people of Texas. Tonight is a victory for all the men and women in this room and all the men and women across this state that poured your hearts, your passion, your time, your energy to rising to defend Texas. To every one of you, Heidi and I and the girls, we say thank you. Thank you. Boy. Gotta love that music. It's really interesting because, you know, we're, neither of us are from Texas, but you have to imagine that everybody in that room has heard that song or heard a similar song to it and can really relate to all the emotions. And, and it's, this night is all about Ted Cruz 
And yet he's playing everything about, this is all about Texas. Right. And that's the big thing that he's doing here. You know, he's linking it. He's linking the energy of the night to Texas when really, of course, you know, whose name is on the banners and on the uh, political signs outside. But what gets me is that every time he says this night is about Texas, when he says that phrase and when he says it's about Texas, he takes his hand and he clutches it to his chest. Like, honest to God, if you watch this video, every time he says this is about Texas, or I think he even did it once when he said this night is about all of you and he puts his hand on his chest again and he's really trying to like to to link that sense of this is about everybody but me, but it's really about me. Right. So he has that thing where he points to himself and as he points to himself and as he clutches his chest, it's a way of non-verbally indicating what he actually wants linked to that. So there's all the emotion and what comes out of his mouth, what the words are is one channel of communication. But then the second channel of communication is what is he actually doing with his body language at the second time at the same time as the words are actually being heard. And as he's giving that double message, it's like a double message, it's mixed communication. Notice how the energy of the night is so high that people, you know, they're not going to look for that and go, oh, he touched his chest, that means that. And yet it's tremendously effective. It's tremendously effective. And he goes on, rising to defend Texas, and he takes his arm and he clutches his chest. (laughs) Right. But what are we defend from what? Exactly. Defend from what? But we're really we really know he's talking about defending Ted Cruz from Beto O'Rourke from the Democrats. Yeah. And I mean, you know, he could make some some allusions there to, you know, the um, criminal illegals or the caravan or, you know, any of that kind of stuff that's going to you know invade Texas or, you know, to. The, the values, you know, so what is it? Is it the values of Texas that are under attack? Is it the people somehow that are under attack by the liberals from outside? Is it, you know, how, how exactly does that happen? But he kind of views himself as the savior that has saved Texas from better work, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's what it I'm is. I'm just wondering who trained him to do all of these things, because this, this this speech is really a lot of really deep motivational speakery kind of tactics, and it, it's really polished. Yeah, if you know who trained Ted Cruz to do these things, would you just tweet at us? <laughs> it's at SubliminalPod on Twitter. Uh, tweet it at us, and we'll, we'll uh, include that. Uh, we, we'd like to know how did he actually learn to do this. We should have a tip line. definitely 1-800 all right now let's see ted cruz (laughs) so now what are we defending texas from let's hear the rest texas saw something this year that we've never seen before this election wasn't about me and it wasn't about beto o'rourke this election was a battle of ideas it was a contest for who we are and what we believe. It was a contest, and the people of Texas decided this race. We traveled every part of the state, from East Texas to West Texas, from the Panhandle to the Valley. 
And the energy, the excitement we saw was incredible. Just a couple of weeks ago down in the valley, in Harlingen, 2,000 people coming out. In Mission, 2,000 people coming out. In El Paso, 2,000 people coming out. And what was truly amazing, at many of these events, we would ask, how many of you here are former Democrats? And we would see hands throughout the room as we're seeing hands now because Texas came together behind a common sense agenda of low taxes, low regulations, and lots and lots of jobs. Oh, man. Texas saw something this year that we have never seen before. And it wasn't and we've a we've never seen Ted Cruz elected before. <laughs> and he really builds it up. It's like that epic battle. It's like the superhero film. It's like, you know, whatever it could be uh, from books or the imagination, some sort of evil menacing force coming to invade Texas. And we managed to fight it off and battle it off. But it wasn't about him. This was a battle of ideas. This is a battle about uh, about Texas. And what we hear here in his voice is that when he starts off to talk, he sounds just like a military commander. He's like the general addressing the troops right before the battle. (laughs) So his voice has that kind of very steady. He's not really changing his voice tone a whole lot uh, when he's talking about this battle of ideas. You know, this wasn't about me. It was a battle of ideas. It was a contest for who we are and what we believe. And the people of Texas decided this race. You know, what he's really great at is just leaning on those words, being able to say them in, in that different way where he acts out the words as he's as he's saying them. And he's giving us that idea of all of the different places that a person can go in Texas, you know, and, and we're going to hear this with some of the other speeches, too. But this is a, a common rhetorical device, you know, from East Texas to West Texas. OK, like. That's telling us something we don't know. Okay, <laughs> from East Texas to West, but the way he says it, right? It's so it's so uh, so big. You know, from the Panhandle to the Valley, Texans came together. <laughs> and what I really love too is that he uses the royal "we" when he's talking about all of this. Two thousand people came out. We saw this. We saw that. When you know who we are, who uh, what we believe at these events, we would ask. And he uses that royal we because he's the one on stage asking how many of you are former Democrats. But he has no reason to be saying we. But what's he doing? He's tying that singular event from himself and that singular experience to a collective experience that everybody was asking this and everybody responded. Yeah, it's like he's taking this whole representative of the people thing a little bit too far. It's almost like he is the people, you know, and so in his language, he's using it to describe as if he is the people. Um, I don't know if that's something in which he just believes or (laughs) if that is, you know, actually something he's been trained, you know, to do. Uh, But we hear another really cool thing here, which is, you know, we would ask, okay, how many of you are former, just think about this phrase, former Democrats, Okay, and, you know, he said, you know, and we would ask that. And then he uses this word because, okay, at the events we would ask how many of you are former Democrats and hands would go up because, 
Okay, now when you use the word because like that, it creates a cause and effect mm. uh, linkage pattern. So because Texas came together, because we did this, because we did that. But the reality is, is that the whole, everything after the word because was just made up was he could fit in anything there and they would still cheer and they would still applaud and it would still be as though it was true because he's linking one thing to another. He's saying because of this, then this other thing happened. Right. Nobody's going to stop and say, hey, wait a minute. I didn't uh, become a Republican because we came out on election night and elected Ted Cruz. But he's sort of reversing that uh, that causal relationship right there. Yeah, and what happens is that in the person's brain, they remember the one thing being true. So they go, oh, yeah, I was at an event where we, he asked, if anyone was a former Democrat. I remember that. And so the whole thing that he's saying must be true. Okay, so he he leads into one thing that's true. And then the person themselves just says, oh, well, that's true. And so whatever it is that he's linking this to must also, by extension, be true. Okay, so now let's get into a little bit more about, you know, what this victory means. And that is a common sense agenda that unites Texans from every part of the state. It was your hard work. This is a victory for the single mom who's been waiting tables, who suddenly sees her wages going up because the economy is booming. This is a victory for the oil field worker who sees now that the United States is the world's top producer of oil. This is a victory for all the kids who are seeing their parents in the last two years, four million people have come off of food stamps. Stop and reflect for a moment the lives transformed. People who had been dependent on government for basic food needs now have jobs and get to come home carrying a bag of groceries. Get to come home and look at their kids and say, I'm providing for my family and their kids get to look up at mom, look up at dad and see the hope. This was an election about hope and about the future, and the people of Texas rendered a verdict that we want a future with more jobs and more security and more freedom. Their kids get to look up at mom and look up at dad and see the hope. <laughs> what, what do they see in mom and dad's eyes that remind them of the hope? But you, I wonder. you see that, like, it, it's such vivid imagery, though. It's... You know, yeah. uh, picture the, you know, the, the working class woman coming home from a 17 hour job. You picture, you know, uh, maybe yourself as as mom or dad uh, coming home. Uh, he says carrying for your groceries, but <laughs> I think he means carrying groceries. And yeah. you're looking down at your kids and you see that they don't have to struggle for food. And the kids get to look up and and see that hope. <laughs> <laughs> it's nonsense, but it really creates this this beautiful uh, image that any any you know anybody can really step into. Yeah, and it's it's see the hope. You know, it's almost <laughs> like a God. It's like a 1930s you know propaganda. Um, you know, on on either side, right? It's like looking up, and you know, the kid looks up, and you know, they're the wonder kids or something. It's it's a little <laughs> bit, you know, it's a little bit scary for my taste uh, to actually hear that. 
One of the things that that he does here, he just kind of slipped it in, and this is a language device, which is he he gives them a really direct command, and this direct command is he he tells them he says you know stop and reflect for a moment. Okay, he tells them to stop. So in other words, whatever they're doing, he just says stop and reflect for a moment. The lives transformed. That's a little bit of an odd way of talking. Like if you think about it, like. You know, if you were just talking to someone in everyday conversation, like, can you actually picture yourself saying that? Can you actually hear those words coming out of your own mouth? If you were to say to them in that way, you know, stop and reflect for a moment, the lives transformed. There's something a little bit tricky going on with that sentence and how it's phrased and, you know, whose lives specifically are being transformed and in what way. Are they being transformed? What does it mean to reflect? You know, and what is all of this that he's linking it to? Okay, the lives transformed by what specifically? By electing Ted Cruz? By the policies that he might have had nothing to do with? And in fact, Donald Trump might have passed that we know, you know, we know that he wasn't always on the best relationship with? Or, you know, is it something else? It's completely vague. And so people get to fill in their own picture. And so one of the big things that you'll start seeing here is the sort of campaign themes that he hits on. And he says it in a very distinctive style over and over and over again throughout this speech. More jobs, more security, and more freedom. And he says it over and over and over again with the exact same inflection that gets you to think that, you know, maybe this is him trying to build up an anchor and perhaps this was his theme throughout the entire election i don't know but he's clearly calling back it's it's a it's a call and uh, a sort of uh repeated statement to bring people back to an emotional state yeah call and response there there you go so what we hear is that he's creating a theme, okay, more jobs, more security, more freedom. It's just like in the, in the debate that he had with, with uh, Beto that he kept saying the word extreme, okay, in their, uh, I think it was third debate. He kept saying, you know, the extreme, 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 because he wants for them to remember that. And so whatever words he's saying repeatedly are the words he wants for them to re- really remember and take away. It's also a comparative deletion, too. More jobs, more security. Well, more jobs than what? More security, more security than what? What does that even mean? And more right. freedom isn't, you know, you're either free or you're not. Or is there, is this a spectrum? What are you comparing this freedom to? How, there's freedom from, there's freedom to. How do you measure this? None of, none of it is actually like able to be critically analyzed, but that doesn't matter because it sounds really good. Yeah. All right. You know, there are more jobs in Mexico. Uh, there is more security, um, meaning you have now a padlock. You know, it's it's like, OK, what what do all these terms mean? Uh, you know, what what does it mean to have security? OK, maybe that's a feeling of security. OK, maybe that's a feeling of freedom, because obviously, you know, from uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Cruz, both of them are talking about freedom. Do they mean the same thing? You know, are they are they saying the same things? Right. Is it is it freedom from being told how to spend your money by collecting taxes or is it, you know, freedom from hunger, freedom from want? And that's the great thing about using very big words like freedom is that they're not defined. And so people get to fill in their own picture of what that actually means, you know, for them.
So let's go ahead and listen to the next clip here. And this is Ted Cruz getting right back into the the parenting uh, themes and, you know, really uh, hammering in a lot of the points. And I want to also take a moment to congratulate Beto O'Rourke. He poured his heart into this campaign. He worked tirelessly. Listen, listen, it's important. He worked tirelessly. He's a dad. And he took times away from his kids. And I want to I want to also say millions across this state were inspired by his campaign. They didn't prevail. And I am grateful the people of Texas chose a different path. But let me say to all of those who worked on his campaign, all of those who were inspired, that I am your senator as well. My responsibility is to represent every Texan. And I give you my word, I will always fight for your jobs, for your freedom, for your security. I will always fight to defend your constitutional rights. That applies to everyone in the great state of Texas. All right. So we hear him talking now about Beto. Um, and we he's talking about, hey, you know, he worked tirelessly. He's a dad. And then he really puts his hand on his own chest right there. And he, he talks about that. And then some people start booing. And he says, no, 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 it's important. Men, millions across this state were inspired by his campaign. And then very, very quickly after that, he says, they didn't prevail. <laughs> and I am grateful they didn't prevail. And then you notice the booing stops, okay? Because it's like, hey, he's not really congratulating, you know, Beto at all. He's not really saying anything. You know, it's kind of like a backhanded compliment a little bit, you know. And, but then, you know, he goes back and he says, you know, all of those of you who supported him, I want you to know that I will always fight. For your, now this is non-specific. your, who specifically is your, is it the people who voted for him? Is it the people who supported, you know, Beto? Like who, who is that exactly? And then we get into, you know, that applies to everyone. That's one of those universal quantifiers again, everyone in the great state of Texas. And I want you to pay attention every time Ted Cruz talks about Texas and he has this phrase, the great state of Texas. He goes into this intonation pattern and he does it exactly the same way every single time. You know, we talked in a previous episode about how Donald Trump does this with uh, words like, you know, uh, like billions and stuff like that. Um, Ted Cruz has this phrase in which he's going to say again and again, exactly the same way. And he's using that because it's an anchor. It's a conditioned response. Now, what I love here is that now he's going to be transitioning uh, after congratulating Beto. He's going to go into sort of indirectly attacking him. And and I don't know if I want to say this is gloating, but it's really laying it on here. We saw an assault that was unprecedented. We saw a hundred million dollar race with Hollywood coming in against the state, with the national media coming in against the state, but all the money in the world was no match for the good people of Texas and the hardworking men and women across our state. 
And, and, and I am so incredibly proud each and every day to stand up and to fight for you, to defend you. We are standing united. We have been delivering results. And now we need to go back to work and keep delivering results. More jobs, more security, more freedom. So here he is talking about this great assault that was totally unprecedented. That $100 million assault. Well, Cruz was part of that $100 million assault. He was, he had a super PAC and he was just as involved as ever. Yet he's sort of building this political machine that, you know, maybe he doesn't want to be a part of or doesn't want to be associated with. He's building that as, as an outside force from LA and from, you know, all this outside money coming to attack the people of Texas. And what he does again building that sort of heroic narrative of the people of Texas standing up to fight back and all of these hardworking men and women clutches his chest again was able to fight back and uh, it's just really it, it's really passionate and motivating and I can see why a lot of people like it and again we get to this theme of defense and assault of what is it exactly that we are defending against? And now we learn that part of Ted Cruz's definition of Texas being assaulted, hey, it's not immigrants coming in over the border only. It's also Hollywood. It's also the national media. You know, this is an interesting phrase, the national media. Okay. Um, and what he says is then, you know, but the good people of Texas and the hard work was greater than all of the money. Okay, so he's he's building up this idea that good people and hard work is more than money. He's creating this idea that money, you know, can't do it. Um, it's instead good people and hard work. Now, of course, what doesn't he mention here? He doesn't mention, okay, political stances, those that didn't vote. He, he doesn't mention all of the the other aspects of, of the uh, the model. And then, what do we hear there at the end? Okay, his famous repetition more jobs, more security, more freedom. <laughs> it's like Mel Gibson and Braveheart. <laughs> All right. And so let's get to the end of his speech here. And it is my hope that with the bitterness and division we see nationally, that Texas can be a model for how we can come together, disagree, yes, but with civility, respecting each other's decency, respecting each other's humanity, treating each other the way each of us would like to be treated. My hope is that Texas can help lead the way to bring this country together behind a common sense agenda that benefits the people of Texas and the people of America. We love you. Thank you for every hour, every word, every step, every bit of passion. God bless you. He's at it again with that royal we. We love you. Who is he talking about? <laughs> Here in this segment, what he's really doing is he's stealing Beto's um, thunder a little bit with his, his speeches and his ideas. Okay, so... These are not the words that Ted Cruz would typically use, okay? You know, when we're talking about, you know, Texas can be a model of civility, of decency, of humility, of humanity, the whole golden rule thing, right? Treating each other the way 
that we would like to be treated. It's almost as though we're at the Beto rally. Okay. And then we hear another thing from the Beto rally. Wait, we love you. You know, where did that come from? I think what happens is that Ted Cruz has been studying the speeches and the rhetoric of his opponent, and he decided to throw some of it in of his own. But notice the different presentation of it. He goes back to Ted Cruz, goes back to this military commander way of doing it. He kind of shouts it at them almost like with power, whereas when Beto says it, it's a much softer, much more um, maternal, much uh, more empathetic. All right, I think that's all we have time for today. Go ahead and tune in next time for part two of this two-part series. And we're going to be continuing talking about how politicians have been using metaphor, stories, symbols, all the rhetorical devices and the persuasion and influence tactics to be able to influence you. Now, if you really enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us on Facebook. Comment out us on Twitter. Our Twitter name is at SubliminalPod. And we have a page on the Patreon. So the Patreon is how you can support us. For as little as $3, you can just buy us a cup of coffee to make sure that we continue to produce this really great content. And we look forward to seeing you next time when we get to the next part of these episodes. Music.